Welcome to Streaming Thoughts, where we stream our thoughts on movies, TV, and all things nerdy. I am Daniel. And I am Nathan. And welcome to our podcast. So Nathan, what is on the list today? Okay, you've been asking for me to get back to this, and I know you love it. (laughs) Did you know Trolls World Tour is available to own now? Not just rent, but you can now own Trolls World Tour. I love the fact that there is a new... (laughs) A new segment of Trolls World Tour in our news section. Thank you for bringing that. Seriously, that's awesome. (laughs) There actually is more to this because following Trolls World Tour, foregoing the traditional theatrical release and doing video online or video on demand, they had kind of set a trend for other people that were delaying or trying to figure out what to do with their movie products that they had. Following them, you have Scoob, King of Staten Island, our past yep. episode of Artemis Fowl. All were originally supposed to have theatrical leases, but all were scheduled to be put into a video on demand release anyway, following what they viewed as the success of Trolls World Tour. So I know I was kind of skeptical about those numbers, but apparently studio executives are really excited about those yeah. uh, video on demand And that's numbers. really great. That's really good to see because... As we're hearing of theaters starting to reopen, which is a really good thing, but at the same time, we're also seeing an increase in new reported cases throughout the country. So, Which is kind of what I wonder, does that affect this newest movie on this trend? Because theaters yeah. are reopening. So the SpongeBob movie that was originally slated for May 2020 got pushed back to August yeah. of 2020. Theaters are reopening. There shouldn't really be any problem with, you know, having a kids movie reopen. But they just recently announced that they are canceling their theatrical release and moving it to video on demand only. Yeah, which it sort of goes to show or to speak a bit about the state of confidence of movie studios with regards to theatrical release performance. And also with consumer confidence and returning to theaters, I think. Because they're looking at this and they're like, okay, consumer confidence to return to theaters isn't really all that good. Trolls World Tour had record number of sales on their DVD, yeah. on their video on demand rental. Scoob did pretty well. King of Staten Island looks like it's going to do well. Theaters are reopening, but let's just cancel our theatrical release before we even have a chance to see it. Throw it on video on demand in, instead. I think that video on demand, I think it's going to be more prevalent, to be honest with you, than theatrical releases, even for the remainder of the year. Again, just looking at trends, because let's be real here, we, and by we I mean the U.S., is not doing so well with this whole pandemic situation. So I don't expect any studio to have any actual confidence in numbers at the box office to be any decent for the rest of the year. Yeah, I kind of think the U.S.'s treatment of this pandemic, to quote the TV show Supernatural, is it really jumping the shark if you never come back down? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So other countries might have a second wave, but you know, not the U.S. We only had the first wave because our first wave never ended. (laughs) Technically, it's wave 1.5, more like. Maybe happier news or more questionable news. A Japanese company created an artificially intelligent AI robot slash computer model that they keep marketing to Hollywood producers to star 
as a lead character in a movie. I saw a little bit of news on this. It kind of popped up on my screen the other day. I didn't really get much more into it, but I thought it was really interesting. The main thing that I've heard about this is that apparently the folks that programmed the whole AI thing taught this actor, quote unquote, method acting somehow. Yeah, so Japanese computer scientists Ishiguro Hiroshi and Ogawa Kohei, they created Erika, an artificially intelligent robot slash computer, to be able to kind of emote and follow along with other people that have come before it in order to base its own reactions to events. So basically, they figure she can't rely on her own life experiences to act. Right. She doesn't have any. So she has to method act off of the actions and acting of people before her. Right. That is actually really fascinating. It is actually pretty scary how far into automation and artificial intelligence we are, which has worried a lot of very, very smart people. AI is already being used to, for example, write articles on newspapers and news sites. You might have read an article that was written by AI. There is uh, music now is another thing. I actually listened to a song not long ago that was written by an AI and the lyrics and everything, which was not bad, actually. It was actually kind of good. But acting is a whole other thing because acting is about the human condition being presented on screen. There's not a whole lot of human in AI. Well, and that's what really gets me. Like, how much of this is going to be acting by the AI versus how much of this is the director looking at a... Like, let's let's pretend this is a Pixar movie. Mm -hmm. Animated, and every single character is by an AI. How much of that is going to be... A director watching the footage and saying, you know what? These brothers need to have a more heartfelt scene. And the AI getting that feedback and making the corrections itself, which in my mind would be a true AI actor. Right. Versus the director telling the programmers that and the programmers reworking and reprogramming the AI to give that more heartfelt scene. Providing more direction so to speak, but in terms of lines of code. Yeah. I don't really... I mean, it's cool. It is kind of cool. The idea... I mean, they shot some test footage last year, and they're saying they're going to pick up the full project in June of 2021. But until you really see the AI itself portraying itself without the further input from the uh, programmers, I don't know. I I don't think it's truly crossed over to a, quote, AI actor. Personally. Right, a true independent self-thinking AI. With the pace of technology, it wouldn't surprise me if we see something more closely to what you're thinking about in like 10 years or maybe even just a little over 10 years, maybe. Yeah, I would not be surprised. Yeah, but that's really fascinating. I'm super interested in it, and especially, for example, as a director, right? Just thinking about directors looking for what they want, giving directions to the actors how to conduct themselves or how to act, how to perform. But for an AI, how do you do that, right? How do you direct the AI? Ang Lee, who famously directed the Hulk movie before Edward Norton's Hulk movie, he had actually come out onto an interview and saying he actually liked directing the Hulk scenes better than the human scenes. Because when he is directing the Hulk scenes, he felt he had 100% complete control over what the Hulk said, what the Hulk 
did how the Hulk emoted. He said he liked the CGI characters better than the human character. Wow. Which, in a way, it does make sense, right? As you mentioned, control, being able to control the emotions, how that's presented on screen with regards to the you know computer-generated graphics, and then it's just the voice acting that goes into that. But again, as we get better with technology and being able to emulate voices and doing all that stuff. I mean, for kind of loud, the deep fakes look all pretty freaky. And, and that's just what we have now, let alone what we'll have in the next 10, 15 years. Yeah. I mean, seriously. So Daniel, so you know what the biggest thing I'm having trouble dealing with with this pandemic? What? The MCU has set a standard of being able to see new Marvel superhero movies that I had never seen before. Yep. I am having trouble. I have rewatched all of the Infinity Saga. I've rewatched my favorite MCU movies a couple times over again now. I have to tell you, I am just really jonesing for a new Marvel superhero movie that I have never seen before. Can you help me with that? <laughs> well, guess what, Nathan? Yes, we have one. Technically... It was never actually released, but through the powers of the internet, we were able to find an unreleased copy of the 1994 Fantastic Four film. Yes, F-494. Yes. I remember hearing rumors that this was an actual movie. And at first I was like, nah, that couldn't possibly have been. That looked crazy and ridiculous. And then the trailer was released, an actual real trailer that actually was played in movie theaters. And then the movie was shelved, never to be released. But somehow a copy of it is out. Although let's be 100% accurate and 100% honest here. This copy that we have seen, it's technically not the official final released version of the movie. Oh, because they never finished it, really. Yeah, it was in post-production, and it sat there, and it was never released. I think the biggest thing that you can tell that this was never actually finished, the word is, is they never intended to finish it. They just made it to cover the requirements of the contract to maintain ownership of the movie rights. Yes. But... If you've ever looked on a DVD or Blu-ray disc of the behind-the-scenes deleted scenes for a special effects-heavy movie, then all of a sudden something happens and the special effects is supposed to go on and it, you see that clear CGI that is obviously unfinished, this is what that CGI looked like throughout this whole movie. Pretty much. Which, by the way, every time I saw something that was supposed to have been CG or some kind of special effect, I was so happy with what I saw. <laughs> and here's the thing. So there is a documentary about this film, this unreleased film. And I saw that documentary straight after I saw this film because I had so many questions. And seeing that there was a documentary, I thought this is the best place for me to get the answers to my questions. Did you get all your questions answered, Dan? You know, for the most part, I did. But what I learned or what I took away from the documentary more than anything was the fact that the cast and crew of this film genuinely thought this movie was going to be released in theaters and they worked their butts off to make sure that they did the best that they could to get this movie released. Well, I mean, they had a million dollar budget and I swear... Half of the budget was spent getting George Gaines to make a cameo, and the other half was spent to make the thing's rubber suit emote. Yeah, 
Which, by the way, that documentary did a little bit behind the scenes on that. And it was actually, an, it was an animatronic. So there was actual technology you yeah. know, used for that. I think, if anything, that was the thing I was most impressed by. It's like, okay, yeah, the thing way deep down at the depths of the Uncanny Valley. You look yeah. at this thing and it is <laughs> nightmare fuel. Yeah. <laughs> but... The way that they got that thing to emote and to express itself was really quite surprising and rather impressive. Yeah, it was really, really well done. You put a layer of CGI over this, especially with today's technology, to not replace it but enhance it. This could have easily become the best thing that we have seen on screen. Yes, so the documentary did talk, by the way, about how literally most of that money from the costume department went to like the thing costume to the point where they, they showed a little bit more of the detail of the Fantastic Four suits. It was like sewn with like the bare minimum stuff. It was just like literally like 90% or more than 90% of the budget went into that costume and then the rest of it was like so how much material do we have left we just have this blue thing and this white thing here let's just glue it on <laughs> glue it on and wear this i've worked with under the moonlight to create quality cosplays or quality costumes inspired by movie characters i have to say i'm looking at these things i'm like every time they turn around their backs to you you see the seam line for where their velcro is like allowed them to get in and out of these suits it's just like really yeah it was bad that was the best you did (laughs) i mean this movie did have a lot of things that you definitely could tell it's not that they didn't want to do better it's that they just didn't have the money to do better i kind of want to talk about that because the rumor is and i didn't see the documentary so maybe this question might be answered from you watching the documentary the rumor has always been that this was just made with these slimmest shoestring budget because they just wanted to maintain the rights and they wanted to wait until they could do the movie right but i'm watching this movie and i'm looking at other movies from about the same era batman forever yeah the shadow yep the phantom yes as far as writing is concerned this movie isn't that far behind what we were expecting from superhero movies of that time yeah I mean, look, when it comes to writing, don't get me wrong, this is not going to be nominated for anything ever <laughs> because it's, it's <laughs> let's, let's be real here. This is not an amazing writing, but I had also recently seen the Judge Dredd movie, the one with Sylvester Stallone, and how campy and corny and just comic booky that movie was when it comes to their dialogue and writing this movie is kind of on that same ballpark on that same area you know it really it feels like they just took literal words from the pages of the comics and put it on screen on the taking literal things from the pages of the comics dr doom's origin story yo his original origin story in the comics was his mother was a sorcerer his father was a doctor he got his intelligence from his father so he was very intelligent and technologically inclined but he also had the magic from his mother's occult being noticed for his ability to combine magic with technology he got a scholarship for an american university where he met a certain reed richards Reed Richards went to help him with an experiment, 
told him his calculations were off. He refused to believe this. Continue with the experiment. It failed. He got kicked out of school, had to return to his homeland, only for Reed Richards to rise up to incredible fame and success and become the Fantastic Four. And he has always had a grudge because he believes that Reed Richards and the other member of the Fantastic Four, Ben Grimm, sabotaged him and was the result of why he got kicked out and why he didn't get the same level of notoriety that they did. Out of the three Fantastic Four franchises, which one do you think has the most accurate Doctor Doom origin story? It is hands down this one. And you know what? I will go further than that. Go for it. I will say that this is the best performance of Doctor Doom than I have seen in any other. It is so much more closer. Joseph Culp. The costume was even on point. Yes, even that costume was definitely the best looking Doom in all the Fantastic Four movies that are out there. Even better than the one we got last, the last, uh, the fan for, uh, what do you call it? Fan fortistic? Fan fortistic. <laughs> fan fortistic. I'm sorry. Yeah. If your marketing department is going to give you a crappy poster with a crappy name, <laughs> I am going to call it by that crappy name. It is yes. the fan fortistic movie. <laughs> <laughs> what was his origin there? He went on this expedition, fell into a ed green energy fire, was left for dead, and when they eventually rescued him, he's like, no, I don't like Earth anymore. I'm going to destroy it. What? Why? And seriously, the costume design for that Doom was such garbage. It, it oh, was atrocious. Man. It was horrible. The costume design for this Doctor Doom is really cool. I really liked it. And by the way, also, quick shout out, Joseph Culp, the actor that portrayed Victor Von Doom. Shout out to him because he actually gave a pretty decent performance. And it was really funny, too. I enjoyed this Doctor Doom a lot. Actually, he was actually pretty funny because my favorite joke in this movie was he had the Fantastic Four captured and he was experimenting on them. Trying to figure out the source of their power so he could have those for himself. Total doom thing to do. Then when they start using their powers together in order to escape, he has them cornered. And he does the typical... I will not soil my hands. <laughs> my minions will come in here and take care of you. <laughs> and then after the Fantastic Four escapes, he returns to be like, Oh, you've been subjugated now, have you? Wait, where is everyone? <laughs> it was... I laughed so much when i saw that scene it was so perfect that was definitely my favorite scene in the entire movie for me well i mean and the thing was even at the time that trope of the supervillain turning his back on the superheroes whilst he let his underlings deal with it was so common of that era yeah him coming back and them showing him coming back fully expecting them to be recaptured and then be like wait what happened to everybody? Right, exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was such a great way to turn a trope on its head. It really was. It was just absolutely great to see that reaction from the actor. Like, everything about that scene was just great. From the performance to the set to everything. Also, by the way, I will say this. The set, there was another thing I learned in the documentary. They reused the same freaking thing it was some sort of wall looking thing that have four little pillars coming down if you go back and watch that movie that 
thing has just been repainted and repositioned slightly differently. And it's just, it was used in the Doctor Doom's place. It was used in Reed Richards' office. It was used in like, it was just <laughs> used like everywhere. And it was just genius. And I always really liked that. Just reuse the same set piece. Just cut, paint it a different color. People don't know this, but other more really higher budget movies do this too 300 for example the movie 300 yeah also reused a lot of the same rocks and stuff like that for when they film in those areas they reused a lot of those and you just shot them in different angles and it was just a really great way of saving of saving money and saving uh, material and time again even higher budget movies do this and that was really well done Another shout out I want to do, uh, going back to what you said about these actors believe they were making a real movie and they were doing their best yes. to make a real movie. Did you pick up on the fact that Ben Grimm and the Blue Eyed Thing were played by different actors? I did. I did pick up on that. I didn't. You didn't? No, I did not pick up that they were different actors until I was looking at their IMDb credits. You know what gave it away for me a little bit? The stature. The thing somehow just felt and seemed smaller to me compared to the actor that played Ben. And then when I watched the documentary, it was confirmed that the actor that did the stunt work or wore the costume is actually like significantly shorter than the actor that played Ben in the movie. I think I kind of picked up on that, but I just, I guess at the time, I assumed it was the limitations of the costume that was making his stature, his stature and movements appear a little bit different. Yeah, because he just sort of seemed like he was more, you know, like Ben the actor uh, or Michael Bailey is the, uh, Michael Bailey Smith is the actor that played Ben Grimm. He just seemed so much taller than Reed Richards, who was played by Alex Hyde White. That's what gave it away, because when I saw him as the thing, he just seemed like they were more on an eye level, which I was like, wait, why is he smaller now? <laughs> and that's actually one of the things that upset Michael Bailey Smith, actually, was the fact that he was so ready to jump into the costume himself that when he found out that they had already cast the actor or the stunt person to, you know, don the the costume, he was really upset about that because he wanted to be the thing himself. Yeah, well, fortunately for him, this movie never really took off and he doesn't have to suffer the indignity of wearing the Darth Vader suit, thinking he was being this menacing Darth Vader and only to have all of his lines written over by James Earl Jones. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone's seen any any of that behind the scenes footage, it is actually really funny to see. He did not have the same gravitas that James Earl Jones did, and I'm no. I'm glad that they replaced him, but I'm also kind of feel bad that they apparently didn't tell him that they were replacing him. Yeah, from the rumors I heard, he didn't know that his voice was replaced by James Earl Jones until he went to see the premiere and was just like, "Wait, what? Wow." <laughs> So I do also want to come back to two things. Later on, I want to talk about the score. But for now, I want to talk about more about how a lot of people... I do have a comment on the score for you, by the way. Awesome. So 
I do want to also come back a little bit to the whole everybody who worked on this movie, with the exception of the producers, really thought this was going to be an actual production that was going to be released in theaters. And the reason why is because, you know, the cast and director and the director and some of the producers, when they saw the list of actors that were auditioning for these roles, some of them weren't no-name actors. In fact, there is one actor that's in the MCU now that actually auditioned for the role of Victor Von Doom. It is a very unlikely person, but if you had to guess which one of these actors, I will make it a little bit easier for you. Oh, wait, wait. Before you make it easier, an MCU actor that auditioned for Victor Von Doom. Yes. Is he a mainline actor or like a supporting or one movie actor? Mainline actor. I want to say Robert Downey Jr. wanted to be Victor Von Doom. No, not Robert Downey Jr. Dang it. All right. That was my best guess. And frankly, that was my best guess because I actually could really see him in that role. He really could pull (laughs) it off. I wouldn't doubt it. No, the actor was Mark Ruffalo. Interesting. Yes, right? Super interesting. And there were a few other names that were, again, not small actors. And I can't remember all of the other names, but the one that really stuck out for me was Mark Ruffalo. See, Mark Ruffalo, in all of his portrayals, one of my favorite movies with mark ruffalo is a romantic comedy i really enjoy watching with my wife we've we watched it together a couple times where he rents a girl's apartment when she's in a coma and starts interacting with her ghost i don't think i've heard of that what's that movie called i don't think i've heard of it it was when he played david across from reese witherspoon in just like heaven 2005 i'm not seen that movie it's a sweet movie it has it also has the actor from napoleon dynamite in it which i thought was well portrayed in his the role he filled in this particular movie has some really great quotable lines from that that kind of creates my image of who mark ruffalo is which is this really sweet gentle human being which is why i like him so much as the hulk yes because david banner is this sweet, gentle human being that turns into an enormous green rage monster. I like that you called him David Banner. Did you call him David Banner? Because I did. David Banner is from the TV show Bruce Banner and the MCU. I was just thinking you got the TV show mixed up. And that's the one. By the way, for those of you who don't know, we're talking about the... 1970s slash 1980s show, right? With Lou Ferrigno? Yep, which I watched quite frequently on reruns with my parents growing up. Yep, me too. Shout out (laughs) to my parents for raising me as a proper nerd. (laughs) Yep, I remember watching that series with my dad. But yeah, so I mean, I I like that Bruce Banner is this sweet, gentle guy. And he turns into this raging green rage monster of the Hulk. I like that. That's why he works for me. Yeah. I don't see Mark Ruffalo playing a villain such as <laughs> Dr. Doom. Yeah. Also, Mark Ruffalo, it's a little bit goofy. It's a little bit of a goofy guy. He is. So, you know, him in a villain role is it's difficult to see. Not that he can't, but I think he has to be the right villain. He can't be like a Dr. Doom style of villain speaking of characters that had more than one actor in this movie sue storm yeah i'm sorry okay i know in the comics it's canonical that reed richards is much older than sue and johnny and i know in the more recent fantastic four movies they kind of retconned it so they were all about the same age yeah but did they really have to make 
an attempt at showing Sue Storm having this emotional, romantic feelings for Reed Richards when she was a little teenage kid and he was a college student yeah those scenes were so creepy to me there were there were look there were a couple of those really questionable things that i was like what the f is happening here this is not i'm not okay with this (laughs) i mean i so cringed at this it was like reed richards was a family friend of her parents yeah right yeah and then all of a sudden you know they have their little lab accident 10 years pass for Colossus to make its orbit back to Earth, and he's ready to reignite this experiment that failed with Victor. And he goes to visit Mrs. Summers, Sue and Johnny's mother, and has this cringy line of, Can Sue and Johnny come play with me? I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah. Not okay with that. <laughs> not, not okay with that. That, that is so creepy. <laughs> So for me, the one real creepy, real creepy moment was when Ben ran into Alicia Masters, the blind woman yep. who was carrying that sculpture rather that she had made. And then they bump into each other, and co- which causes her to drop her sculpture and it breaks. And then Ben is like, here, let me help you up. Literally picks her off the ground and is just did this whole motion that I was like, what are you doing? Why are you grabbing her like that? That No one should ever do that to anybody, period. It was so creepy. And he was like, you're safe with me. And I'm like, none of that would make me feel safe. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping off of that, let's go to the score of this movie. Previously, we had an argument where I said, if the score was particularly memorable to me, it means that they did a bad job because it was standing out and being blurred. And you had the opposite opinion that that was a good job. Yes. This is an example of what I was talking about. Because in that moment, all of a sudden it's like, oh, here's the music they're playing when two people are falling in love. Yep. And then later on, they were showing when uh, the jeweler was stealing the Diamond, here's the music they play when a villain is up to villain things. (laughs) Yes. Go back to Reed Richards picking up Susan Storm to go up into space. Oh, wait. Here's the music they play when two people are falling in love again. (laughs) It's like... (laughs) Yeah. So I want to point out. So it's David and Eric Wurst, W-U-R-S-T. My partner was like, oh... They are the worst. (laughs) So these two did the music for this movie. I want to point out, they actually spent 6,000 of their own money to make the music for this movie. Oh, I feel so sorry for that. Again, this is how much all of the people that were working on this, they were so invested that they were willing to put their own money on the line. This is how much they wanted this movie to be good. It's so heartbreaking to see that this movie was never released. I believe it. Everyone believed they were making a good movie. And they were doing, putting their all in. And apparently even putting their own money into this movie to try and make it good. And I just... Oh, it's so heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. But the worst, in my mind, the main score and theme for the Fantastic Four, which played right at the beginning of the movie when the credits were rolling, that was just fantastic. Pardon the pun. 
it was really well done. I really appreciated that particular score. Now, is that where they spent most of their time and energy on? Definitely, because the rest of the music was garbage. (laughs) (laughs) This is the example of what I mean when I say, if I am noticing the music in the scene, the music is not, the score is not doing its job. And that was every single time because it was like, oh, here's the dastardly do is up to dastardly evil again. Here's the people are falling in love again. Oh, here's this one. It's just, oh, it was all up front, in your face, so apparent what they were trying to accomplish. And it was so painful to watch or listen to. For anyone, for example, like just go to Spotify and then find a movie score of any movie. And you will definitely see more than 10 tracks that are available to play. There's many scores that I've seen that have, I think the lowest one I've seen had 13 tracks. Most of the movie scores have 15, 16, 17, sometimes even more than 20 tracks. This movie, it seemed like they have like five or six tracks and they, <laughs> that's all they had. And that's why you kept hearing them every time. Yeah. Right, because they didn't have like well, we didn't have time to to record a whole new version of the love theme song. So let's just play it again. <laughs> so painful. But again, the main theme was awesome. I agree. I I did like the main theme, but the rest of it just so painful. Yeah, it was real bad. What did you think? You said pardon the pun of it being fantastic. What did you think of the mother nicknaming the four of them hanging out? As the Fantastic Four. Dude, that was so cringy. It was so cringy. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of wonder if the writers had done a couple different rewrites and then just called it good without really reading it through as a whole. Because Reed Richards wants to bring Ben as a pilot because Ben was in the Air Force. Makes sense. And then he says, let's get Sue and Johnny in on this action. And Ben... Was against it, but Reed Richards like, do you know anybody else who knows more about this project than they do? And then they show up, and it was, oh wait, you don't know anything about this project? We're just, why are we bringing you along again? Oh, Johnny, I don't know if I'm actually going to bring you into space. Oh wait, there's Sue Storm. Play the love music. Oh, (laughs) yeah, I will totally bring you and Johnny up into space. It was so back and forth. I'm just Reed Richards' lines himself. And I'm like, did they read this from start to end, uh, how this played out? It was really a bizarre pacing of the movie and a bizarre character building in this movie. It's just, again, like, if you were reading this from pages in the comic, it would really translate well if you put those things into comic book. But taking that same comic book strip and just literally putting that on film with no modification just as is this is what you get you get exactly this it it just in a way is what makes this movie so endearing but in another way it makes it real cringy (laughs) (laughs) i have to say despite its many flaws we are going to get a Zack snyder cut of the justice league where they are putting another 20 million dollars into it to allow him to Finish it the way he wanted to finish it. Yeah. Disney, Marvel, seriously, if you go back, give the producers and directors of this movie another $20 million to finish the special effects of it and release it as a official release on Disney+. Plus. 
Yeah. Despite all the cringe factor of it, you're probably going to still end up with one of the better Fantastic Four movies. Seriously. I think that they would make a good chunk of money out of this. Absolutely. What we saw was obviously very unfinished. So unfinished. Even forgiving the fact that uh, Johnny Storm was able to flame on and outrun a laser, (laughs) which literally travels at the speed of light. And when he got in front of it and took the brunt of the force until he blasted it back and somehow changed the directory of a laser away from New York and up into space where his powers famously do not work. I'm still willing to forgive this just because they were trying to so quickly do the special effects of this. And they are so obviously not finished. Right. I do want to point out, I can't remember exactly when they received the news that they were going to make this movie, but they needed to have it finished by the end of the year. And so that means that they had... I want to say at the very best of times, they probably had like eight months of work, which is not a whole lot of time. I mean, productions that are big, I think they had even less time than that, actually, now that I think about it. So they had an incredible short amount of time, not a whole lot of money. They didn't really have the resources to spend on what they really wanted to do and what they really wanted to make. In fact, a lot of the special effects, they actually hired a guy who technically had no idea how to do special effects, how to do CG and any of that kind of stuff. And they lost like, I want to say like 60% of the budget that would go for special effects on that person who produced basically nothing. So a lot of this stuff, they had to essentially beg other people and try to figure it out themselves to make it work. What they were able to give and put in the movie is remarkable considering that they had basically weeks to work on something that would otherwise take in months. They were rushing it. They had a deadline. They had to make something with Fantastic Four by a certain deadline or else they lost all rights to it. The production window that they gave for shooting this film was 25 days. Maybe only (laughs) 21 days based on some accounts says they only had 21 days to do it. Some accounts say they had 25 days to do it. Four days, give or take, is not a huge difference. That is insane for making a feature like this film. Yeah, it was an insurmountable task. I want to really stress this. Everyone worked really hard on this film. You can tell that they worked really hard on this film. The attention to detail that went into some of this stuff, it is actually really, really cool how much attention they put into this stuff. And cringeworthy lines aside, I thought the acting, you could tell in the acting that they were giving their all. They were trying to do the best they could with the lines they were given. Absolutely. They did a pretty good job. I think in my mind, the performance again of Joseph Culp as Victor Von Doom, maybe not the Victor Von Doom before he became Dr. Doom. There he was kind of like, eh. but as Dr. Doom, he was great. He yeah. just had a really great performance in my mind. It's something that he takes a lot of pride in actually on based on his documentary. He's like, no matter what, I was the first Dr. Doom. Yeah. Going back to the costume department, running out of money after building the Things costume, they had a very iconic, very accurate mask for him. The rest of his costume looked, you know, was on point for color and style from the comics, but... Yes! 
obviously kind of cheaped out on at the end for sewing and cutting. Yeah. But still, the most accurate comic book Victor Von Doom we have. Some of his lines were cheesy, but I love seeing him emoting with his hands and clicking his gauntlets together to get his yes. point across. He put so much effort into this. I'm like, I love this guy. <laughs> Such a really great comic booky villain. Just through and through. It was it's just classic comic book villain. And I have to specify, if you put this up against today's MCU movies, it would fall short. Of course. If you find a bootleg copy of this movie and you go to look at it and you think you're expecting a Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man or a Thor's Ragnarok, you're gonna be disappointed. But if you go back and watch some of the superhero movies of the time of the mid nineties and then you watch this movie, you're going to really ask yourself, why wasn't this finished? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I will say that if this movie had actually been finished, and I mean, more than that, if this movie had been given a proper budget, I got to tell you, I think that they would have actually turned this into an actual real good comic book movie, which would mean that the renaissance of comic book films wouldn't have happened with x-men but it could have potentially have happened with this one they underestimated themselves at this point i think we're kind of just rechewing the same scenery at this point mm-hmm. yeah you mean with regards to the, <laughs> the set <laughs> <laughs> pretty much yeah so we can jump into our tldl too long didn't listen all right this is the section where we give you our closing thoughts on this movie so nathan fantastic four 1994 unreleased what are your thoughts if this movie had been given a proper budget to finish the special effects to properly release in the theaters i don't think it would have won any like major academy awards but right now you would probably have seen it as the cult classic of superhero movies where you would have the diehard fans talking about how great it was and how all other Fantastic Four movies fell short of this original. Yes, definitely agree with you on that. I think I'm with you, 100%. I think that this movie could have been a really good comic book superhero film. For the time, I think it could have been. And you can tell the hard work, you can see it, and it was cringy, yeah, it was corny, it was cheesy, yes, absolutely. But I think that there's something here that I thought was endearing and fun and really entertaining. So, look, this is probably my favorite of all Fantastic Four movies. I had the most fun watching this one than the, all the other ones, especially the last one. Right. <laughs> so, Dan, before we sign off, final thought for you. Do you think Kevin Feige should reach out to Ole Sasson and ask him to direct the Fantastic Four to properly bring these into the MCU? <laughs> that would be an incredible comeback if he could pull this off. Also, if you want to tell us what you think about that question, then you can definitely let us know on Facebook at Streaming Thoughts Podcast and on Twitter at Streaming Geek. This has been Nathan. And this has been Daniel. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.